I think in my 12 years of being here, one of the most important series that I've ever done, uh, because the topic of the topic is timely, and we're in a series called What's Love Got to Do With It? And it sounds like it's a duh statement, but when you observe what's happening among Christians, it actually becomes a very valid question, a very concerning valid question. So I'm going to just do a brief recap of where we're at so far, and we'll continue with where we're going. We have answered a couple questions. What is love? A couple of weeks ago, and so I define love as this. I'm just going to take, created a definition. If you wrote this down last week, you have it, but this is a recap. This is the previously at Solid Rock. But the recap of what is love is the definition is this, and this is coming out of all that we see the Bible say love is. And be clear, when Jesus is talking about love, a new command I give to you, which is the love that we're focusing on, he's not talking about romantic or parental or marital or he's not talking about a love that pretty much anyone experiences. What Jesus is talking about, what the Bible is calling us to, the kind of love the Bible is speaking about is not love that people who don't belong to Jesus are capable of doing. The scripture tells us, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, even sinners, non-Christians love people who love them. Even they lend to people and expect in return. So he's not talking about the love. So, so when you think about love, our tendency is to think about love from the, from the emotional standpoint or from the way we process things that we think, well, duh, but no, 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 no. The love that he's talking about here is not a, well, duh, it's more of a huh? Because it requires something of us that we can't do on our own. Otherwise, all people would love this way. But love is, I defined it as this, it's a command to act sacrificially, motivated solely by God's love for us. So there's the kicker. Biblical love that Jesus is requiring to imitate him is motivated by how God feels about us, not by how we feel about others or how we perceive others feel about us. This is a different thing. It's a paradigm shift, and it's difficult because we are wired to be motivated by how we feel about other people or how we perceive other people feel about us. And if I don't feel like being loving or kind or patient or gentle, then I'm not going to do it. It's harder for me to do it. Or if I feel that this person doesn't feel that way about me, it makes it hard to do it. And Jesus says, neither of those things matter. It's how I feel about you that motivates how you act towards them. So it's a command to act sacrificially, motivated solely by God's love for us through Christ's sacrifice for our forgiveness. This is why not everyone can do this, because the majority of people are not motivated by God's love for us through Christ's sacrifice. They don't even think about that. They're motivated by how they feel. Think about all the things you love. Why do you love them? When you're loving towards people, why are you loving towards people? What, what motivates that? 
through Christ's sacrifice for all forgiveness that produces actions from us that imitate him for the benefit of others. It's a long definition, but it's thoroughly biblical. Love is a command to act sacrificially, motivated solely by God's love for us through Christ's sacrifice for our forgiveness that produces actions from us that imitate him for the benefit of others. So we are trying to imitate Jesus. That's what he said to his disciples in John 13 a few weeks ago. Remember, love one another how? As I have loved you. Not because you've spent three years together. Not because you've heard the same training and you've slept in the same beds and you've eaten the same food and not because you've done this with me and you've been here and we've traveled here and we've traveled there. Not because you guys actually get along after three years of being together. You don't love each other like that because anyone can love someone they spend time with, even if it's inappropriate. He said, love as I have loved you. That's what love is. Why do we love? We looked at three reasons. One, now these two of these are duh. One is because God is love. It's first time four. God is love. Second reason we looked at why do we love is because he loved us. He said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So our love, the love that God is requiring us is a response to his love. It wasn't something that, it, that we drummed up towards him. It was a response to his love. And the third reason we saw from 1 John 4 why we love, so we can have confidence on the day of judgment. So Jesus isn't just giving this command. He's saying it's connected to you standing before me on the day of judgment. This love is connected to your eternal destination. In fact, Jesus said, well, the scripture says this. And says, how can you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? So how can you love God whom you haven't seen, but you don't show any love towards professing believers whom you have seen? In other words, how, do you, how are you a Christian motivated by God's love when you don't love other Christians? You don't love people in your D groups. You don't love your pastors. You don't love this. You don't love that. What confidence will anyone have who spent the majority of their Christian life being critical, complaining, judgmental, bitter, arrogant towards other people? You will not stand before God with confidence because when you see him, all the lovelessness that was a part of our lives will be in the forefront. And the only thing we're going to say is, oh, no. So we said we love because it gives us confidence on the day of judgment. You know what's interesting? The Bible never says that sound doctrine will get you to heaven. Now, it doesn't mean that you should just believe anything. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, you know, you can believe some bad doctrine and make it to heaven. But you can't be an unloving Christian and make it to heaven. How do we love? We looked at last week, there were two main questions that we asked. We asked this, 
What is the action that love requires right now? So we understand love not to be an emotion in the most humanistic sense. Most people would think of love emotionally, how we feel. So what's the action that love requires? And we looked at 1 Corinthians 13. You can look at any passage of scripture that has moral attributes. You can look at Galatians 5, fruits of the spirit. You can look at 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. You can look at Colossians 3. You can look at Ephesians 4. I mean, you can go down the list. But you can take 1 Corinthians 13 and say, okay, what is the action that love requires of me right now? Not how do I feel about this person, not how does this person feel about me, but what's the action that love requires from me right now? Okay, maybe I need to be patient. Maybe I need to be kind. Okay, maybe I shouldn't envy or be boastful or arrogant. Okay, love is not rude. Maybe the action that love requires right now is not being rude. It's not being self-seeking. Let me not insist on my own way. Let me not be irritable. Let me not keep a record of wrongs. Doesn't mean not I can forget sometimes what happened to me, but let me not replay it over and over again and act a certain way towards this person because they've hurt me. Maybe it doesn't find, maybe it finds no joy in unrighteousness, right? How many Christians are celebrating that Trump has the coronavirus? You know, many people say, yeah, see, he said that he. He joked about it and dismissed it and all that. Now look, he has it. That is not, that's unloving. You're rejoicing in this. I know many Christians who said stuff like this. I've even told some, man, I would, you should, that's not loving, bro. You shouldn't joke like that. You know one reason why you shouldn't? Because God may give it to you. God may say, okay, now you got it. What's the action that love requires of me right now? This has been a monumental question for me because it helps me gauge how I should be and it helps me gauge where I failed. Ah, oh, man, I should have done this. Should have been this, should have been this way. Uh, I should have been patient. I was irritable, okay. And then the other question that we get, how do we love? Is what do I want other people to do for me or how do I want them to treat me? We saw in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus said, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The Old Testament, the whole Old Testament hinges on me, you and I thinking about how we want to be treated and then treating people that way. That's how weighty that is, that Jesus said it's the law and the prophets. Okay, how do I want to be treated? In, 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 in biblical ways, not in your personality. I'm an introvert. I don't like to talk to people, so I'm not talking to no one. That's not what God was getting at. I'm an extrovert, so you just show up and you're the life of the party everywhere. Sometimes extroverts need to hush up. And sometimes introverts need to speak up. How do we love? We're going to look at the new question today, but I want to do something a little different. I want to do something that I haven't done in this series. I don't do this that often, but I want to do something a little different. I want to go, before we go a little deeper, I want to do something different. First, I'm going to read the passage that we're going to look at today. 
And then I want to bring you into something that I did on my sabbatical in August. So let's, let's read the passage in Galatians 6. This is where we're going to be today, just in this passage of Scripture. And then I want, to, I want to explain to you something that I did on my sabbatical that I'm going to bring to light today. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 7, I'm reading from the CSB translation. And it says this, and I quote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even if the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your own flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. Now you're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with love? We'll see in just a moment. But before we get to it, before we come back to this, I want to do something. I want to bring in something I did when I was on sabbatical. I was on sabbatical in August, and one of the main things that I did was on sabbatical is I read. I read a lot on sabbatical. I read a little bit more than I'm able to. Because, well, I read a lot anyway, but I read a little bit, read a little bit more because I didn't have, you know, I wasn't working and, and meeting and counseling and preaching. And one of the things that I read, a topic I was fascinated by just thinking about where the culture has been, and mainly the church. When I think about, when I'm saying I'm in the church, church culture, thinking about where Christians are. Why are we this way? What's the, where does this political divisiveness come from? Where is all this coming from? I really felt like I wanted to study the history of evangelicalism in America. So I went on a, I ravaged books. And, and articles and things just to get a sense of how do we get here? No one is in the place that they're in in light of just waking up yesterday and being like, here we are. This isn't lost where you just wake up on an island and you're trying to figure. No, there's, and even that, you're putting together the pieces. How do we get here? That's something I just, I love to do those, how do we get here? And so I did a thorough study of a history of evangelicalism in America, and I want to spend the next 15 minutes walking you through my findings. I read enough to see that there is a consistency in what I'm about to share, although there are many details. You can't give something as, as broad as that. I'm going to give a condensed version of this, but I think what I'm about to share with you, while it may seem disconnected, will actually be very important to answer the question that we're going to answer today of when to love and some of the challenges with what we see in our culture today. So we're going to do a history of evangelicalism, a condensed version in evangelicalism in America. 
And we're going to start with where this really takes root is what's called the Scope Monkey Trials in Dayton, Tennessee, July 10th, 1925. This is what's called the evolutionary debates. It's, it's because, and let me back up a little bit. In 1859, Charles Darwin released his book, The Origin of Species. And this book, he was, he was the first one to say, and I want to quote what he says here. He says, the view which most naturalists entertain and which I formerly entertained, namely, that each species has been independently created is erroneous. So Darwin introduces this idea of evolution, no longer creation. And creation is something that has been in, in, in America since its founding. The idea that a God, an intelligent designed being, God the creator, created all species. And now all of a sudden, Darwin writes his book and says, I don't agree with that anymore. In 1871, he publishes his second book called The Descent of Man. And in this book, he basically says this, and I quote his own words. Man is descended from a hairy-tailed quadruped, probably arboreal in its habits, and an inhabitant of the old world. Now, many of us who don't believe this may laugh at it and mock it, but this was a significant rock to evangelicalism to the church because someone is rivaling science is rivaling creation and many people thought oh no so from this Christians came up with what's called the fundamentals is we're going to talk about what are the fundamentals of the faith we believe in the inerrancy of scripture we believe in Christ we believe that God created all things all the things that we would agree with for the most part became what was called the fundamentals and launched a sort of sub-genre sub in the church called fundamentalism. But it was also evangelicalism. So these two names, these two words, fundamentalism and evangelicalism are sort of overlapping. They kind of mean the same thing for a while. But it was, we're getting back, we're going to stand against this. And there was also a lot of theological liberalism at the turn of the 20th century where people were going way over here some agreeing with Darwin's understanding of creation and humanity. So fundamentalists said, nope, we're planting our flag here. And people who are with sound doctrine are going to ride with us. So there becomes this sort of back and forth. It's subtle, but it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing. In 1921, a former congressman, ex-secretary of state, his name was William Jennings Bryan, he was... He became the leader of sort of the fundamentalist movement. He was the anti-evolution movement. He delivered speeches like the menace of Darwinism and the Bible and its enemies. And, and he was one of the first people to really push back. And he was, he was strong. This is back before TV and stuff. So it was radio and, and newspaper. And you could hear his voice pushing back against the enemies of the Bible. In 1924, he delivers a speech in Nashville entitled, Is the Bible True? And in the room to hear this speech was a Tennessee legislator by the name of John Washington Butler. And from that speech in January 21st of 1925, the, the Tennessee legislature made a law called the Butler Law that you could not teach evolution in any schools in Tennessee. They had a vote. The vote was 75, 71 to 5. Landslide vote. Evolution is banned from being taught in schools. 
Well, shortly after that, a couple of days later, the ACLU challenged that law. And what they did was they put a call out to the newspapers to find anyone, any teacher, who would be willing to go to a school, a high school, and teach from a Darwinistic scientific understanding of creation of humanity. And that would cause a court case to happen. So, so they did. A man agreed to do it, and, and, and the law was attacked. And so now they formulate this court case. And it was called the Scopes. Monkey Trust Scopes was the name of the teacher who taught evolution in a state, Tennessee, where it was banned. This trial, to us, is history. Many of you are hearing about it for the first time. But at the time it happened, it was the trial of the century. Clarence Darrow was the, was the defense, and Williams, Jen, and Bryan was the prosecution. And they were two heavyweights. Darrow was a staunch atheist. Jennings Bryan was the fundamentalist Christian who was pushing back. And media came from all over the world to observe this court case, all over. In particular, one man in particular, a Baltimore reporter who was a pronounced racist, but also a Christian cynic was named H.L. Mencken. And he covered the trial. And people paid more attention to what he wrote. He was a celebrated journalist in his day. And in this trial, the judge of the trial was a Christian. So he made sure that the Christians won the outcome. But here was the problem. At some point, Clarence Darrow put Williams Jennings Bryan on the stand. So this is that, if you've seen A Few Good Men, this is that, this that scene where Jack Nicholson is on the stand, and everyone was like, this is going to be it. They're going back and forth. But Darrow asked questions like this. So you mean to tell me that you really believe in a virgin birth? Jennings Bryan was like, I believe, I definitely do. And, and Darrow starts to ask questions and, and really poke fun at what we would believe to be true. And H.L. Mencken, he ate it up. As a cynic and atheist and racist already, he ate it up. And all of a sudden, even though the court case was won by the Christians, the public opinion had shifted. The Christians are stupid. This was unheard of. And here's what happened. The fundamentalists began to withdraw from the culture. They began to pull away and become separatists and isolate themselves from the surrounding culture, developing a bitter attitude, a judgmental attitude, putting its hope in the fact that Jesus was going to come and essentially burn everything down. And they removed themselves from being Christians in the day. What started off as a good thing combating theological liberalism, fundamentalists went from theologically conservative to culturally combative. This was a big problem because the majority of, a good majority of the church were considered evangelicals slash fundamentalists. And they were moving away from the culture. Many men rose up against fundamentalism, but three stood out. 
three men stood out. The first was a man named Harold Ockengay. He became a leader in what was called the neo-evangelical movement. He had concerns that fundamentalism is removing itself from the culture in a way and, and losing the intellectual capacity of the culture. Losing the sense of intelligence about the faith, it was removing itself from the culture. In fact, here's what was written about Harold Ockengay and something that he said specifically about why he pushed back against this. Here's a couple thoughts from, here's what was written about him. Ockengay became a significant leader in what became known as the neo-evangelicalism movement. The roots of this are found in the theological controversy between Protestant fundamentalists and Protestant liberals in the early part of the 20th century. While Ockengay sided with the fundamentalists in reaction to theological liberalism, he with others such as Carl Henry, Harold Lindsay, Wilbur Smith, and Edward John Carnell became dismayed with the growing militant isolationism of the fundamentalists. So here's one of the heroes, the, the, the heavyweights of evangelicalism, who was a fundamentalist, who would agree theologically, but he says he was growing and he was in a, in a, being dismayed at the growing militant isolationism. They are removing themselves from people and they are angry about it and they're proud about it. He says this is an effort to redress these concerns. Akengay established a new organization called the Nation, National Association of Evangelicals. This organization today hosts about, I think, 12 million people would say they're a part of the National Association of Evangelicals. He says he served as a founding president from 1942 to 1944. And he said this. This is what he said explaining why in a book that was written. He said this. Neo-evangelicalism was born in 1948 in connection with a convocation address which I gave in the Civic Auditorium in Pasadena. While reaffirming the theological view of fundamentalism, this address repudiated its ecclesiology and its social theory. So in other words, he's saying, I stood in front of a bunch of evangelicals, fundamentalists, and while I agree with the conservative view of scripture, the fundamentals, I agree with the, the virgin birth, I agree with all the things that we would agree with, he says, I did not agree with, and I pushed back, he says, repudiated, this is his own words. He said, I did not agree with the separatism and ecclesiology, the way you do church, and its social theory, meaning it, what, what it thinks about the, the surrounding culture. He said the ringing call for repudiation, which is a rejection of separatism, and the summons to social involvement, being involved in the world, helping with the social issues of the world. He said received a hearty response from many evangelicals. So all of a sudden now, evangelicalism is splitting. It's splitting. You have one side who would consider themselves the fundamentalists who are becoming militant separatists from the church. And you have another side who are now calling themselves neo-evangelicals. They are theologically conservative, but they're culturally compassionate versus theologically conservative and culturally combative. There's a shift happening, splitting. Now, on the surface, it looks like they're all the same. They're all Christians. But within the inner circle, there's a rift that's happening, and it's happening quickly. The next 
the second person that was significant in what was called the neo-evangelicalism movement was a man named Carl Henry. In fact, Carl Henry is called by many the father of neo-evangelicalism. As this was happening, as this was happening, he wrote a book in 1947 called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. I read that book right here. I read that book this August, and it blew me away. I want to read two excerpts from this book. Mind you, this is 1947, under Jim Crow, racism is systemic and around, things are crazy in the culture. This is Carl F. H. Henry. You know you something when you got to use two letters for your middle, you got two middle names. I want to read two things that he said. Now, this is, these are his words. This is 1947. Here's what he says. He said, the situation has an even darker side. The great majority of fundamentalist clergymen during the past generation of world disintegration became increasingly less vocal about social evils. It was unusual to find a conservative preacher occupied at length with world ills. In other words, he's saying it was unusual to find a conservative preacher talking about the evil that's happening in the world and what we must do about it. And he doubles down on it and says this. In a company of more than 100 representative evangelical pastors, the following, the following question was asked. How many of you during the past six months have preached a sermon devoted in large part to a condemnation of such social evils as aggressive warfare, racial hatred and intolerance, the liquor traffic, exploitation of labor management, or the like. A sermon containing not merely an incidental or Ill illustrative reference, but directed mainly against such evils and proposing the framework in which you think a solution is possible. In other words, how many of you are preaching sermons against this stuff using the Bible as the way out, as the way to really do this? That's his question. How many of you are taking what's happening in the culture seriously? Here's what he said. Not a single hand was raised in response. And remember, this is more than 100 representatives of evangelical pastors. Not a single hand was raised in response. Now, this situation is not characteristic only of one particular denominational group of fundamentalists. Rather, a predominant trait in most fundamentalist preaching is the reluctance to come to grips with social evils. That's one. Last quote, he says this. Remember, this is 1947, 73 years ago. No one in this room was alive that I know of. If you do, you got the fountain of youth. <laughs> 73 years ago, here's what he says. Fundamentalism in revolting against the social gospel, which was the theological liberalism of the day. Fundamentalism in revolting against the social gospel also seemed to revolt against the Christian social imperative. It was the failure of fundamentalism to work out a positive message within its own framework. So it was a failure in fundamentalism to work out a positive message in its own theological framework. Let me rephrase that. It was a failure of fundamentalists 
to bring the gospel to bear on culture. He said, and its tendency instead to take further refuge, move itself away, in the disparaging, in the despairing view of world history that cut off the pertinence of evangelicalism to the modern global crisis. So they, instead of coming up in its own theological framework, a positive message, a way to combat the social evils of the world, fundamentalists removed themselves from it, cut off any ability to do that, and therefore did not bring the gospel to bear in the modern global crisis. And then he says this, the really creative thought, even if in the non-redemptive context, was now being done by non-evangelical spokesmen. It means all the creativity about how to change the world was all done now by non-evangelicals, basically non-Christians. So you gave up the, the, the loving your neighbor as yourself and, and bringing the gospel to bear in the culture because you're offended at the culture mocking the tenets of the faith. And instead of engaging the culture and seeing them as people that are lost, you are essentially removing yourself and creating a culture of the church that would have a combative view and is waiting for Jesus to come and destroy the culture and to rescue you from it, burn it down, and then rebuild it with you at the center of it. This is the critique. This is 1947. Much more could be said about Carl Henry, but the third person who, who made this mark in neo-evangelicalism is the one name that many of us will know, Billy Graham. Billy Graham eventually, through his preaching, becomes the face of neo-evangelicalism. But Billy Graham had a problem. He had an arch enemy, which was a man named Bob Jones. Bob Jones was an evangelist in South Carolina that was a separatist through and through. He did not like that Billy Graham was more ecumenical, that he was able, he was friends with presidents. He did not like that he was friends with Dr. Martin Luther King. Bob Jones was a racist. And people listened to him. In fact, in a, in a, in a Baptist publication, here's what they say about the relationship between the two. It's no secret that regular Baptists and other fundamentalist aligned groups didn't see eye to eye with Graham on everything. The first contentious issue was ecumenical evangelism, meaning you're doing stuff with a lot of people, not just Christians. It says this, Graham was happy to partner with ecclesiastical groups of all stripes, including groups he did not personally agree with, such as Catholics and Protestant liberals. This ran afoul of fundamentalist views on biblical separation. So there was a fallout between Graham and the separatists, many of whom were former friends and supporters. So Billy Graham is out preaching. He's doing these crusades. He's saying, hey, cut down the, 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 the divide between blacks and whites, and, and, and the fundamentalists are hating this. Bob Jones was known to critique Billy Graham publicly. Along with Carl Henry, Billy Graham starts what's called Christianity Today magazine in hopes to usher in a new way for evangelicals to pursue culture. And then time goes on, and we hit the 60s, and you see significant unrest in the 60s. The 60s was a decade. You have the pill that comes in the 60s. 
And all of a sudden, now people can take a pill and not have babies. And so that comes right alongside the sexual revolution. You had the gay rights revolution. You had the civil rights revolution. You had, you had uh, 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 um, assassinations of major black leaders like Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. You had Vietnam War. You had communism. All this was happening in the 60s, which further let fundamentalists remove themselves from the culture. And it was during this decade where a, a lot of what's called rapture theology, it's more dispensational theology, but a lot of the theology, the eschatology, the end times, became a major focus. Now people started to wait for Jesus to come back and this teaching of the church being raptured to be pulled away from all of these things. And even though not everyone believed in all of the theology, but the end times, what was going to happen, became the main way people saw the world. Because fundamentalists taught significantly that Jesus is going to remove the church out of here and get us away from all this ungodliness. Well, then the 70s hit. <laughs> and then the 70s. You have abortion. Roe v. Wade, 1973. Now, many people, including today, today's evangelicals, conservative right, rally around the issue of abortion. They rally around it. And rightly so. I think abortion is evil. But there's an impression that, that how we got to this place is because of abortion. And it's not really true. Randall Balmer, professor of Dartmouth College of Arts and Sciences, in his book, Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter, here's what he has to say. He says, today evangelicals make up the backbone of the pro-life movement, but it hasn't always been so. Both before and for several years after Roe, evangelicals were overwhelmingly indifferent to the subject which they considered a Catholic issue. The Catholic Church was the ones who were upset about abortion. Let me tell you something. Catholic, the Catholics, their anthropology is, crushes evangelicalism's anthropology. That's a different time. In 1968, for instance, a symposium sponsored by the Christian Medical Society and Christianity Today, the flagship magazine of evangelicalism, refused to characterize abortion as sinful, citing individual health, family welfare, and social responsibility as justifications for ending a pregnancy. In 1971, delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention in St. Louis passed a resolution encouraging Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. The convention, hardly a redoubt of liberal values, reaffirmed that position in 74, one year after Roe v. Wade, and again in 76. Here's what he's saying. When abortion came, conservative Christians didn't have an issue with it. The Southern Baptist Convention, who was not liberal at all, supported it and made resolutions in the Southern Baptist Convention for its support under particular conditions. There was not the outrage that you hear today. In fact, the Supreme Court, who allowed for abortion in Roe v. Wade, was five Democrats, four Republicans, and it was a seven to two vote. One Republican and one Democrat 
did not agree with it. So three Republicans signed off on abortion, which came under a, a Republican president by the name of Richard Nixon. So then how did it become the main issue for the evangelicals? They had removed themselves from culture. What brought them to this issue? Was it the evil of abortion? Was that the lawsuit, the court case that caused this? Not according to, to Randall Balmer and many other people that I read. Here's the issue that brought abortion to the forefront for the evangelicals. Since in May 1969, a group of African-American parents in Holmes County, Mississippi, sued the Treasury Department to prevent three, three new whites-only K-12 private academies from securing full tax-exempt status, arguing that their discriminatory policies prevented them from being considered charitable institutions. The schools had been founded in the mid-1960s in response to the desegregation of public schools set in motion by the Brown vs. Board of Education of 1954. In 1969, the first year of desegregation, the number of white students enrolled in public schools in Holmes County dropped from 771 to 28. The following year, that number fell to zero. So let me tell you what happens. I'm not going to read all. Here's what happens. So a court case happens. These, these, these families sue, these, uh, sue the fact that you can't say you're a tax-exempt government under charitable, as a charitable organization institution when you're racist. You're not allowing black people to come to these schools. And they're saying you can't do that. So a court case happens. And the 19, on June 30th, 1971, here's what happened. Under the internal review code, properly construed, racial discrimination, racial discriminatory private schools are not entitled to federal tax exemption provided for Charitable educational institutions and persons making gifts to such schools are not entitled to the deductions provided in case of gifts, charitable educational institutions. In other words, if you are racist, you will no longer be tax exempt. And anyone who gives to your organization will not be considerable taxable uh, tax exempt donations. It will not. You cannot be racist and claim to, and get funding from the government. The IRS started to send out letters to schools like Bob Jones and Liberty. And Bob Jones, a staunch separatist and racist, basically said, we're not integrated. We're not. So for six years, from 1970 to 1976, there was a back and forth with these private Christian schools that would not allow black people to come to these schools. Well, in 1976, the IRS pulled the tax-exempt status. They pulled it. As a matter of fact, it was January 19th, 1976. Let me read to you what was said about this. For many evangelical leaders who had been following the issue since Green versus Connolly, Bob Jones University was the last straw. As Elmer L. Rumminger, longtime administrator at Bob Jones University, told me in an interview, the IRS actions against his school alerted the Christian school community about what could happen with government interference in the affairs of evangelical institutions. This was really the major issue that got all of us involved. So let me make sure it's clear. It was racial segregation and being punished for that 
is what made evangelicals come together and say, we need to, we need to push back against this and create a political force that does not allow the government to, to attack us in these ways. Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell was one of those men. As a matter of fact, he was quoted as saying, in some states, it's easier to open a massage parlor than a Christian school. Jerry Falwell, with the help of Paul Weyrich, who was a political activist and religious conservative, they went after, they needed a catalyst. Here's what, as a matter of fact, here's what Paul Weyrich says. That's what he says. The new, this new, the new political philosophy must be defined by us, conservatives in more moral terms, packaged in non-religious language and propagated throughout the country by our new coalition. When political power is achieved, the moral majority will have the opportunity to recreate this great nation. The leadership, moral philosophy, and workable vehicle are at hand, just waiting to be blended and activated. If the, major, if the moral majority acts, results could well exceed our wildest dreams. But this hypothetical moral majority needed a catalyst. They needed a standard to which to rally because you're not going to get everyone to rally around racial integration. So for two decades, Weyrich, this is his own words, I've been trying out different issues hoping one might pique evangelical interest. Pornography, prayer in schools, the proposed Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution, even abortion. I was trying to get these people interested in those issues and I utterly failed. This is what he said at a conference in 1990. Well, after the racial integration, it became the, the mode for which they, they needed. It was the catalyst. And with the help of Jerry Falwell, they pursued one Francis Schaeffer, who was, Francis Schaeffer is described as a goaded, knickers-wearing theologian who was warning about the eclipse of Christian values and the advance of something called secular humanism. Schaeffer, considered by many the, evangel the intellectual godfather of the religious right, was not known for his political activism, but by the late... By the, by the late 1970s, he decided that legalized abortion would lead inevitably to infanticide and euthanasia, and he was eager to sound the alarm. Schaefer teamed with a, a pediatric surgeon, C. Everett Koop, to produce a series of films entitled, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? In the early months of 1979, Schaefer and Koop targeted an evangelical audience, toured the country with these films, which depicted the scourge of abortion in graphic terms, most memorably a scene of plastic baby dolls strewn along the shores of the Dead Sea. Schaefer and Koop argued that any society that, counter, that, counter, that countenanced abortion was captive to secular humanism and therefore caught in a vortex of moral decay. And with the help of Schaefer, Falwell, and those guys, I don't, Schaefer, I don't think he knew Falwell and Weyrich's motives. But with the help of him, the religious right beat Jimmy Carter to put Ronald Reagan in the White House. And thus the moral majority was born, the movement. But it was a movement that had removed itself from the social issues of the day. And many of those issues had to do with what was happening with people of color. It was also aligned itself with the political movement that had removed themselves from the social issues of the day pertaining to people of color. So now you have Christianity, conservative Christianity, that rallied around the abortion issue, but its underpinnings was really racial integration was their main, was their main beef. This was basically vengeance. 
It was vengeance against the government for interfering with their ability to have people in schools who they want, which is essentially not black people in these schools. And so what happens is this becomes the conservative platform for Christians and over generations and generations still removing themselves, still separated from the cultural social ills of the day apart from abortion. And then now LGBT things and stuff like that. And so here we have today. So what we see happening today is not new. Now, much more could be said, but I've already gone longer than I wanted to. But it, but it was important for me to help you understand why we're doing this series. Because one of the reasons why it was hard to find a book on biblical love among evangelicals is that they didn't do it. This was one of the reasons why it was scarce for me to find a book among evangelicals is because you can't write about what you don't do. There's no literature. Now I can give you all the receipts. This is all true. I'm not making any of this up. This isn't me. I'm not even trying to, this is just history. I'm not trying to skew anything. I'm not trying to bring anyone to make anybody angry. This is just history. The divide that we see happening today has, its, has an origin. And this is why we're in this series. Because the church, the conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist church, has proven itself to be unloving, uncaring, and even people within its own movement critiquing. This isn't me critiquing you. These are critiques from men who are celebrated. Carl Henry, Carl F. Henry has buildings named after him at, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Men that people would say are heroes are still doing the very thing that he's critiquing 73 years ago. No wonder we are where we are in the church. So have that in the backdrop as we now zoom in quickly and look at Galatians 6, 7, and 8. The original context of this passage is simply Paul is combating against a new gospel, another gospel which are basically trying to get people who believe in Jesus to be get circumcised like they did in the Mosaic law. But if you get circumcised, then that means you're trying to, you're saying I can obey the Mosaic law fully. And the whole point is no one can. This is why Jesus came. So you don't have to get circumcised anymore because you can't obey the law anyway. So that's, the, that's what he's going after in this letter to the Galatians. He's pushing back. Again, so how are you beginning with the spirit, now returning to the flesh? How did you believe in Jesus, but now you're trying to go back and do the requirements under the Mosaic law, which you can't do, which is the reason why Jesus came in the first place? And so as he's concluding his letter, he says this, beginning of verse 7, looking at 7 and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. So these words are alluding to God's omniscience. God knows everything, right? It's alluding to that because he's saying God cannot be mocked. And I love this phraseology because what he's essentially saying is do not be deceived, but God can't be deceived. Do not be deceived that God can't be deceived. That's essentially what he's saying. God knows everything so that he can't be mocked. 
Now, mocking is like, you know, turning yourself up, to get, turning your nose up to God, as they say. Looking down on him with some moral superiority. And he's saying, look, you're deceived if you think you can mock God. You're deceived if you think you can mock God. The person out to fool God will find himself the fool because making a mockery of God, of what God says and what God says do, will not bode well for anyone in this life or the next. And here's the connection. Because God sees what's being sown. He sees what's being sown. He sees it. And he makes certain that whatever is, whatever is sown will have consequences. Now, when it says sow and reap, sow is a farming term, farming uh, a designation. It just means basically spreading the seed out. You go out, you take seed, and you spread it out in good soil in hopes that it grows. So he's using this term to say, when you sow seed, which we would call today creating habits. Just creating habits and patterns of doing things. So you sow, and then you reap. You reap, you go back and gather it up. So basically, whatever you put out there will eventually grow up. It has consequences. So whatever habits that you create are going to have consequences. They're going to bear fruit. So if you're a loveless Christian, it's going to have consequences in your attitude and your actions. If you don't spend time reading God's word because you're not a reader, it's going to have consequences in your maturity level. If you don't go out and share the gospel with people, then you're going to think of that. You're not going to have the same view of people because you're distant from them. He's saying there are consequences for your actions. Don't be fooled. God's not going to all of a sudden, you, like, sometimes people will say this, and I was, I didn't do, me and Mike didn't decide to do Q&A for this purpose, but we do it after, at the end of almost every message, just because it was, it was really for us a way to help the church stay engaged and listen and focus and giving them a chance to ask questions. What we didn't count on was that, that, that people would be like, wow, our pastors know the Bible. Because when you ask us questions and we're able to, to shoot off passages and make connections to the scripture, these questions aren't given to us beforehand and we had time to think about them. We answer them on the spot. Well, that only happens, for me at least, because I've memorized the Bible a lot. I've memorized scripture. I've spent time digging in and keeping the word in my heart. It's not like I don't know the Bible and God would just, here you go, Kirk, use this verse. Now use this verse. And now use that verse. No, these are all things that I've read, I've studied, I've memorized. So when I'm asking questions and I'm thinking, the spirit just gives them back. Remember this, remember this, remember that, remember that, remember that, remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it looks like, wow, Kurt knows his Bible. It's like, now nah, the spirit is faithful to those who pursue understanding the Bible. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the spirit is saying, look, you've sown to knowing the scriptures, so now you can grab them when you need them. And this point is saying, look, whatever habits you cultivate are going to grow. They're going to grow up. There are results. And if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap destruction. That's just it. You can't live for the flesh and think there are no consequences. This is why Jesus said you judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. Why? Because whatever fruit that comes up is the seed that they sow. Sown it. No good tree bears bad fruit. If you ever are wondering where you need to grow, look at the fruit of your life. It's not rocket science. It's hard science, though, because sometimes when we realize, like, wow, I was praying this morning, like, dag, Lord, I thought, I, I thought I'd be further along in this area. I was praying that this morning, just a little disappointed, to be honest, struggling a little bit. 
If we sow to the flesh, we reap destruction. And if we sow to the spirit, we reap eternal life. This is what he's saying, the consequences. Whatever seed you put out there, it's going to grow. You're going to gather. You're going to reap, gather. What me and Mike, what we were talking about the other day, Mike, what goes around comes around? <laughs> In verse 9, he says this, let us not grow tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. So here's the encouragement to press in. He says, listen, don't get tired of doing good. Don't get tired of sowing seeds of doing good. Why? Because you're going to reap at some point. You're going to reap at the proper time. There's going to be benefit from that. So, but here's the problem. Who determines when we reap? So we want it to be us. We want it to be us looking for the blessing. I know I do. I want it to be me. Hey, man, I've been reading this week. I've been praying real good this week. I've been doing all right this week. Lord, I've been trying to serve my wife and helping out doing this, even vacuuming this week. Like, man, we're, you know, waiting for something good to happen, you know. Then your car won't start like, Dad, Lord, I mean, what was all this? You know, it's like, man, what we do? What we talking about, Lord? I don't know. I talk to him like that sometimes. He can handle it. Here's the encouragement to press in. Let's not grow tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time. And guess what? Fundamentalism did the opposite. And they taught many Christians, millions of Christians, to do the opposite. Remove yourself from doing good the culture. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about what, fundament, what fundamentalism, it's original intent. I'm not talking about the fundamentals of the faith. I agree with all of that. I would agree with fundamentalists in that. It's the application of that faith that myself, I stand with Carl Henry and Harold Ockengay and, and other theologians that are way more uh, vicious than me. I agree with them because I see it play out. When, 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 when people agree with you on almost everything, but they disagree with you on issues of justice and race, and now they're heretics and they're enemies, but they agree with you on all the fundamentals, that's fundamentalism at its finest because it makes people the enemy. It was said of Bob Jones, he spent so much time telling, telling people who was out that he failed to bring people that were out in. Fundamentalism failed to do this, to, to, to not grow tired of doing good. But the reason why we grow tired is because God determines when we reap. And honestly, I don't know. I can't prove this. I can't, there's no verse I can say, but I, but I think most of the reaping that we're going to do is not in this life. A lot of the rewards that we get are not in this life. I mean, there's verses I think I can use to back that up, but it's, I mean, even Paul says that in Romans 8, 18, if I consider that our present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory, we're so wanting things right now. And so if we don't get it right now, then we stop doing it, but then we're sowing seeds to not doing it. And then what grows up is a lovelessness. Let me tell you what, people have been home for about six months. Many people watch the sermons and do other things. You're distracted by watching, by doing other stuff. Then you don't get it then you don't grow. When you cooking and all of that, you wouldn't do that if you was at church though, right? But when you at home, you cooking, you chilling, you doing your kids' hair, you distracted by all this stuff, 
When you're working, though, you focus. But when it's God's word, you're doing whatever, and then you wonder why it's not taking root. It ain't like you ain't hearing the word. You just ain't listening. This is what happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. If I don't, if I don't, if I, if I sow seeds and just wait until tomorrow, uh, you know what? The, Mick from Rocky had the best phrase. There is no tomorrow, Rocky. <laughs> well, actually, that was Apollo when he was running on the beach. There is no tomorrow. So we grow tired of doing good because we're looking for the reap. And the Lord says, it'll, at the proper time, the proper time. All of this is building up to make the point in verse 10 that directly answers our question. So when do we love? We looked at what is love? Why do we love? How do we love? So when do we love? Verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. As we have opportunity. When do we love? As we have opportunity. This wonderfully covers the range of responsibilities in two ways. One, as we have opportunity. Let's be honest. There are times you might be by yourself for a couple of days. You might not have opportunity. You might not feel like you have opportunity, and that's okay. Maybe your opportunity is online, or maybe your opportunity. I see people, I see people, I see people posting crazy stuff online, and then other people responding back with grace. And I just love it because I know what they're doing, and I know how hard it is to respond back to that dumb post with grace. I see it. I love it. I see it because it's a lot of stuff that goes over. It's just crazy. There's a lot of fundamentalism around in a lot of people that think culturally combative. Even theologians I respect. I watched a guy give an interview where he was talking about a political, a political party with just such fear of what they're going to do and this and that and that. And it's like, fam, listen, church, the non-Christian world are supposed to do non-Christian things. One of the things that fundamentalism has done wrong is to evaluate the world by biblical standards. And this is where, this is where even the world would say we're not loving. You don't, you can't, evaluate. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the man without the spirit of God does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 2 Timothy 2, 26, for, God, for the devil has taken them captive to do his will. 2, 25, for the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but compassionate. Perhaps God may grant them repentance. Why? Because they've been taken captive to do the devil's will. 1 Corinthians 5. What have I to do with judging the outsider, says Paul? God judges the outsider. I didn't tell you to stay away from people who are idolaters, sexually immoral, all these things that are not, that are, that are, that are unbelievers, because then you have to leave the world. He said God judges them. I don't judge them. In other words, so what fundamentalism does is it judges the world by the Bible standards, and then everyone's defying God where they're supposed to, because they don't we're the ones that know them. We're the ones that's supposed to be like, hey, let me show you a better way. But when you pull back from them and you judge them, then all you got to do is that. And what we create is chaos, political turmoil, Christian chaos within the church among people who are supposed to be like, hey, I get why you do that. I 100% get it. I get why you don't understand why we don't do that. 
because you don't have the spirit within you. I get it. And it's not self-righteous. It's just biblically factual. As we have opportunities. So here's a question that we need to ask ourselves. When will those opportunities present themselves to us? When will those opportunities present themselves? So we've asked a couple questions. Right? What's the action of love that is required right now? How do I want others to treat me? Here's another question. When will I have opportunities to do good today? What's the work today? And it could be some. It might, I mean, there's always opportunities. We don't, but some things don't require work. Some things it's just natural. It doesn't require as much work for me to, like, hug and kiss my boys and stuff like that, you know? tickle them and mess with them. You know, it doesn't require a lot of work for me to do that. But it requires, a, I'm driving up to McDonald's to get a sweet tea and the person who was in the other lane, I'm already finished and I'm pulling up and they decide to run up and try to cut me off and you gotta be like, man, hold, and it's just a sweet tea. It's like, man, but I'm sitting here like, man. And it's like, hey, would you like, would you like to go? I'm thirsty, but I can wait. As we have opportunity, and listen to what it says, work for the good of all, not just the believer. Work for the good of all, not just the believer, but especially the believer. Listen to what he says, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. We work for the good of all so we can get behind things politically that are for the good of all. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We work for the good of all, but especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Why? Because these are the people that agree with you, that are persecuted with you, that you're going to spend eternity with. And it's sad because I see a lot of fundamentalists arguing and bitter over things with people that you're going to spend eternity in heaven with unless you're unloving, and God will determine that. This is why God cannot be mocked. You know why? Because he gives us the opportunities we have to do good. He provides those opportunities, and then he watches to see what we do with them. He provides them. That's why he can't be mocked. He provides them. And you know what? You know what comes out? Here's what comes out. Whatever you've sown. Whatever you've sown. If it's hard for you to love people, because you've sown that way. You're sowing seeds to that. And you have to go after that. Here's one more question to ask from this passage. What seeds have I sown that I'm now reaping? What seeds have I sown that I'm now reaping? If it's difficult to do this, what seeds have I sown? God is not tricking us. He's not like, hey, you need to do this, but I'm going to make sure you can't do it. <laughs> He's not doing that. You know what I'm saying? He's just not doing that. You know, he doesn't tell us to be loving and then we just can't. He doesn't do that. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't do that. Yes, it's difficult. It doesn't mean it's not easy to do things. I'm just saying God doesn't do that. So if I'm not able to do that or I'm not willing to do that, then the question is, what have I sown to get there? Go back and look at the categories of love. You know what? Maybe I've been keeping a record of wrong so long to this point, I can't love them. And it's not that I can't, it's I'm unwilling to for the most part. There are some times when our brains are affected. That's a different category. Or there's sometimes there are some things I can't do based on some, some physiological thing. But for, the, for most of us, though, what I can't do is I, it, just, it would take too much work, so I'm unwilling to do it. So I'm just going to hope that grace is amazing enough that God will excuse it. And if your love isn't genuine enough, he's not. 
Lord's been showing me this a ton. And I'm going to be honest with you, this, isn't, this is like actually novel. I've had the privilege to talk a ton to a ton of people this summer and share what I'm learning. And people would be like, and I'm not saying this to boast at all. I'm saying this to prove to you that this is, this is what's happening. People will text me and be like, hey, bro, phenomenal job. People are saying, hey, we need to have him back on. We need to hear from him more. No, you don't. You need to believe 1 John 4 more. You need to believe John 13, 34, and 35 more. You need to believe Galatians 6 more. Sure, I can come back, but I ain't going to say nothing that hasn't been said here. I might just say it in modern-day vernacular. I might make you laugh as I tell you a story for it to stick, but the reality is I'm I'm not making this stuff up. I'm getting it from here. You don't need to hear more Kurt. You need more Christ. We need more of this. I'm a, I fail at this. I got no conflict with my wife a couple of days ago. Over something dumb. I'm sitting there on the couch, irritated, irritated, irritable towards her. Because I ain't like her tone of voice. And the whole time the Lord was like. <laughs> and I'm like, man, and I just taught this two days ago. Wow. Lord, make sure you are what you teach. So we works in progress. But I'm committed to this. I've seen fruit. God gives us the opportunity to do good, and the priority is to do good to everyone, especially those who are believers. And the reason why I went to verse 14 We're going to read 11 through 14 right now in closing. He says, look at what large letters I use as I write to you my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who will compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about the flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. You know why I wanted to go this far? Because I think what, what he's getting after is essentially what those who wanted them to be circumcised was essentially saying, we want you to be like us. You need to be like And I think that's what fundamentalists have done. Is they, you need to be like us. But what you do is you pull people away from being like Jesus. Let me tell you something. This is a problem in millions of people's lives. And, a lot, and I'm not saying this to be a race thing, but a lot of what, he's, what they were critiquing are white evangelicals. That's a lot of what they're critiquing, white evangelicals that are conservative and that view, that have fused conservatism with Christianity. And, and conservatism is a Republican designation. It's just like it's conservative, conservative. You add Christian to it, and that becomes fused. And it's like, nope, you cannot. God is not an American. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's none of that. He's not a fundamentalist. He's not an evangelical. He's God. He's above everything. We're trying to figure out him. He ain't trying to align with us. What's happened is that we've just, just like these people here trying to compel you to, to, to be like them so they can boast that these people are like us. I see this all the time. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, shining a light one tweet at a time. 
14, may, it, may, may verse 14 be where we stand. I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. We must, we must be people that engage the world, not be separatists and remove ourselves from it. That, just, that is not the way. And it's, it's not my critique. It's the critique of men who are sharper than me that saw it when it was really obvious. No wonder it's the same stuff today. No wonder we're fighting over the same thing. Different organizations, different names. Now it's Marxism, not communism. Now it's Black Lives Matter, not civil rights. Although Black Lives Matter is, is an organization that I don't bang with at all. But again, they worship witches, but that's a different message. And they said that with their own words. They said that. They said they worship them. I ain't banging with them. I cared about black people's stuff way before they came along. But who cares about that? The, what God cares about is where's this? Where's your, where's, your, where's your heart? Where's your mind? Where are your actions? What are we committed to? What's the action of love requires from us? What opportunities will prevent themselves, present themselves today to help me do good for all, especially those in the household of faith? These are not God's suggestions for a better life. These are his, his commands for, to be a genuine Christian. All I can do is, is just say nothing to be true. I can do nothing else except try to do it. Let's pray. Father, I know I went longer than I normally do today, but I wanted to give... I wanted to give our church a history because I think most of us don't really understand how we're culturally here. It just seems like that it just happened. It just came out of nowhere. And no, there's, there's, a, his, there's a history here. There's concern here. There's division. Division has happened long before us. I think you are, part of your judgment towards the church, I think, is exposing the lovelessness of the church. The only right here is, 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 is being biblically loving the way you command. There is no right or wrong here apart from that. You are not going to judge us according to who we voted for. You're going to judge us according to who we love and how we love. And while that may be somewhat simplistic or reductionistic, the reality is, Lord, the 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 command from you to be loving sacrificially as described not just emotional based motivated by how we love others how we feel about them or them about us help us to to really to Lord help this to sink in I'm not good enough of a communicator to do that my stories aren't funny enough my my, my, my understanding is not good enough my communication is not good enough Lord, only you can really impress it upon the hearts. For, 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 for all I know, people were distracted and weren't paying attention anyway. So, Lord, I, I just pray that you would do the work in the heart necessary. Lord, it's easy to be distracted. It's easy to create habits. Lord, I pray that, that we would not psychologically sow to the habits of, of distraction and ambivalence and 
and see these things as what I'm saying or what this is or the new thing, but no, the thing. This is the genuine fruit of our conversion in you. And as a culture, even within the church, is spiraling out of loveless control. Help us, Lord, to grab hold of your word, to review these questions daily as we enter into the fray, as we enter into the world. It is easy to fail. Lord, I pray this, that we would apply this love, this uh, because to the people that are closest to us. I know I failed this week with my wife. I'm sure others have. I pray that you would help us to not be exempt from those that we're the closest to. For even those who we're the closest to are our neighbors or our brothers and sisters. Every once in a while, our enemies. I pray that you would help us to press through them. Not because I said it, but because you said it. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Got him. If not, I'm gone. Chance play at one. All right. Uh, right now we have two questions, and um, <clears throat> this person starts by saying they think that this is a little off topic. I'm not sure that I agree with them, but um, in their experience, they are a member of the church. They feel like the witness of the church carries a lot of weight. Um, what ways would you suggest that we renew our minds when we see a large group who fail to engage and witness in the way that you laid out for us so that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and continue to uh, cling to and be obedient to the Lord and reaching out. So if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, the person's asking, when I see a large group of people uh, not being loving. So is the question, how do I not throw out the theology because they're not obeying it? No, I think the question came when you were talking about the, um, as we have opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I think they're talking about reaching out in general, um, you know, just not reaching out, people not reaching out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, there's no, some of these aren't cookie cutter answers, right? So it depends on what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, so one of the things I'm doing when I see, so like if I noticed, like the, the witness of the church, right? Like to be, let, let's just back up, to be honest. I don't know who the church really is. Only the Lord knows that. There are a lot of people that say they're the church and they're not really, they're not the church. Right. So on one level, I, I don't even know if I, now, if you profess to be a believer, fine. I'm a rival with what you say, especially if I don't know you and have any evidence to the contrary but what I see. I don't know. What I don't do is, is there's a couple things. I think we have to be careful to admire what I call platform epistemologies. We have to be careful not to put people up on pedestals that we admire because we've read their books or we've heard them preach in conferences and stuff like that. A lot of what's happening in the church is a lack of of community with their local pastors and more affinity toward people who have big platforms and big views. Mm -hmm. And when that dude says unloving, then you, there's no accountability with him. Mm -hmm. You can't ask him about his statement or this or that. You, you can't, he's not going to answer no questions for you for the most part. So mm -hmm. I think we have to be careful about who we admire, and then we have to be careful about who we imitate. Mm 
Mm. Like, who are we imitating? And then I think also, I think we have to define, I think, so Christianity has to be very much individualistic, and it has to be both individual and then culture. It has to be both, individual and communal. So for me, I need to think about, okay, how am I doing, and then how is my community doing? That's really most of what I care about. I think because of social media and stuff, we think, there's just so much information we're exposed to, that like we see a lot of stuff, and then sometimes we get overwhelmed by so we respond that through. If things don't affect our church, I don't even worry about them. Mm-hmm. I'm not even worried about them. Like, I mean, I might, I speak at other churches and say stuff, but I don't even say to our church because I don't know if that's where our church is. And I'm gonna be honest with you, we haven't been together in six months. I hear little things here and there. I have genuine concern for our church. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna pretend like I don't. I do think people are at home just chilling, and, and the messages are somewhat like entertainment or not. Like, I don't think so. I do hear some of that going on, people not doing this, not tripping, not, that's cool, but, and again, even in that, it's like, okay, faithfulness, so you got to measure faithfulness according to, do, are you doing what you know to do? So like me, I'm measuring faithfulness by, Lord, this is what I believe you wanted me to say, what I need to communicate, and if nobody takes it seriously, and nobody does it, then I, I, I can stand before the Lord and say I said it. With conviction, I said it. I wasn't afraid to challenge, I wasn't afraid to acknowledge my weakness in it. I'm not afraid to do any of that. So I think we have to think about that. We have to be like that as believers. But I would say, if anything else, take seriously first the call in your own life. Mm. Make sure this is, because you're right, the witness of the church, but some of them people, I can't influence them. I don't know them. I don't have any relationship with them. Even if some pastor teaches something that, like, that has a popular platform that I don't agree with, so what? If, he doesn't affect, if it doesn't affect what people in my church think, I don't care what you say. So again, I think it just, it's, it's a matter of, for me, I'm, I have a little bit of a bigger platform, so I do interact, so I feel a more of a responsibility to say and do certain things with certain situations. But I think first and foremost, I got to make sure I'm good, I'm doing this, and then my community is doing this. I want to think about how's my D group doing with this. How am I, and honestly, you should, I, I, think, I think everyone should, in their D group this month, in the month of October, have a meeting and say, hey, how, you guys know me some. How do you think I'm doing in this? How do you think we're, we're, how do you think I'm doing in being loving sacrificially? Like what, you know, I, but see, a lot of us ain't going to ask that. We're <laughs> just not going to ask it. We're just not going to ask it. And so it's like, all right, cool. But then, again, but that's, it's sowing seed. Like, what seed am I sowing? I'm not manipulating you. This is what the Bible says. What seed are you sowing? Like, it's going it's to come up. It's going to grow. If you're not tripping, it ain't because you don't like what I said. It's because you've sown seeds to other things. We all tripping off of something. We all are responding to something. We all, so I think we just have to be mindful of that. Thank you. Uh, Another person asks, um, how do we share with others the concept of fundamentalists are loveless in a way that doesn't also make them the enemy and attack them? How do we love them well, given the role they have played in history? How do we engage with Christian conservatives in a loving way? Well, I, so let me say this. Not all, like, when I talk about being a separatist and things like that, like, a lot of believers just follow their leaders. Like, there's a lot of people that don't even know this history. They just think, this is just how I was raised. I grew up like this. They're not really, let me tell you something. I've had more people, so I talked about this on my podcast. We did it, and I had no idea that this would happen. A ton of people heard the podcast and have gotten to me and a guy, my buddy, who I do the podcast with. Even he on the show. If you heard the show two weeks ago, even he was stuck in the moment. He realized, whoa, this is, I just kind of have 
been raised in his circle and has agreed with a lot of the, not just the theology of it, but the practical nature of it. I think a lot of us, we just, it's, it's, I don't see fundamentalists as enemies. I don't see them as enemies. I see them as wrong in their understanding of cultural engagement. What this history does for me, actually, is it helps me to understand what's happening and to even have some grace for people who are conservatives because they're just breathing the smoke that they've been around their whole lives. I'm not going to get mad at somebody who grew up largely separated from people that don't look like them, and they just have a particular viewpoint. Now, if there's a relationship that can be had, then I want to share what I think. Because a lot of what, the thing about fundamentalism and the people who practice it in the separatist combative way is the scriptures go against that. Like, there are times where we have to present people the Bible and let the Bible do the work. Like, I can't convince you that you, or that you think this way because of that. But what I do, but what I want to do is I want to hear people out. I do a lot, because I'm, I'm, I, I do a lot, I talk to a lot of people. So I hear a lot of people's perspectives, I ask questions, and I present some points, and people, I'm, I'm, God is doing something about love that is unique right now. I just had a guy text me from a conference down in Tennessee. And he said, bro, I'm at this conference. It would be largely fundamentalist. And he said, I'm having conversations with people. And he said, the stuff that we're talking about, you're talking about about love, is having an impact, bro. I can't wait to share with you when I get back. But the Lord's doing something with this issue. The Lord cares about his people. Right? He's not trying. But he has to... he has to expose things before people know what to do about them. I think what he's doing now is exposing this stuff. And this is course correction. It's like, okay, when you see it, the Lord doesn't expose things so that he can shame you. He exposes it so that we can be ashamed and not do want to be that way. Mm-hmm. Like when he exposes things, I don't want to be that way. It's not like I'm sitting there, he, like I'm in a conflict with my wife and I'm irritable. I snapping at her, and then I'm just, and then I'm sitting there like, hey man, this is my, this is it. It's just like, oh man. I'm just like, oh man, this is. What was the action of love? It was to not be irritable, not, and I was able, I just saw it. I was, I saw it, and I was like, that happens, but we keep moving, right? We keep going. So I, I, I think that God is. I think when we're thinking of people who are fundamentalists. There are going to be people that make it hard to love. There are some people that say stuff that I think is not helpful. I do not think when you say, if you vote Democrat, you're not a real Christian, genuine Christian. I think that's just, so when that stuff happens, I'm saying something. Because I'm watching the, the, how that played out. I'm watching that. I'm having to un- help people process that. And I'm being asked to speak in people's churches and stuff. You know, it's like, nah, that's dangerous. But I think, but, but, but again, I think a lot of people just don't really know so I'm not looking to confront people as much as I want to hear them out and then present to them a better way. When Paul said, when Paul, and I love this, when he says at the end of, of, uh, of 1 Corinthians 12, oh, he, he says, let me show you the more excellent way. Right. I'm just trying to show people the excellent way. I ain't trying to judge them. Right. Shoot, I've been loveless a lot too. Right. I've been culturally combative too. Like it's not like, oh, okay, I'm not coming down the mountain with two stone tablets. I'm telling y'all what the Lord's telling me. And I'm trying to, I'm challenging y'all to grow in the ways he's challenging me to grow. That's all I can do. So yeah, I think we can just, I think we got to try to show people the way. I've had many back and forth on, on Twitter and stuff. And then by de-escalating, people would be like, hey, bro, you know what, man, I apologize. People have said, I apologize. I missed, 
understood what you were saying, and then my bad, bro. I pre- and I said, hey, no worries, man. I've done it a thousand times, man. Grace and peace to you. I've actually won people by not being that. Let me just let me show you who I really am, you know. <laughs> I was a gangster in the street. Now I'm a gangster on Twitter. I got you. So anyway. All right. Thank you. Um, this person asks, uh, what did it look like when the fundamentalists uh, separated from the world initially? Was it a gradual shift? So I, no, I, I wasn't alive, but <laughs> we'll clarify this. What I've heard, what I've read, what I've read, I've read a lot. I've read a lot. I gave you all the super condensed version. I mean, I could have spent, I could do a series on this. Um, what I read was that it wasn't subtle within the church. It may have been subtle to the world. So like in 1976, when Jimmy Carter, who was an evangelical, won the presidency, Time Magazine put on their front cover the year of the evangelicals. But evangelicalism did not all bang with Jimmy Carter. They may have helped, they voted for him, but then once abortion became an issue, they started speaking out about abortion in 1979, six years after Roe v. Wade. Once that became an issue, those same evan- a lot of those same evangelicals that helped Jimmy Carter become president turned against him and, made, and, and helped Ronald Reagan become president. So again, I, don't, I, don't, I think within the evangelical church, it was like being in like a club. Like we know what's happening. So like Billy Graham and them, Carl Henry and Harold Ockengay and other guys, they knew what was going on. They knew these guys don't like these guys. So I think it was, it might have been subtle to the world, but within the church, I mean, guys like Bob Jones and other guys, they made it pretty clear that we don't like these dudes. It wasn't like subtle. It's like, we don't like these dudes. We don't like Christianity today. We don't like, you know, these things that they're doing. We don't like the National Association of Evangelists. We don't like this stuff. They made it clear. They weren't, you know, people weren't, they wasn't no politically correct like it is today where you qualify everything. They made it clear. So I think it, was, it wasn't subtle. I think it's obvious. And if you want any materials to read, I can point you in the right direction. But I mean, I read enough to be like, wow, this is pretty much a, a, a faithful narrative, faithful history of how you know, we got here. And I think, I, think there was, I think there's always been, so there's been this split that happened in like the 40s. So like Fuller Theological Seminary was Carl Henry started that. And, uh, and uh, I think it was, was it Harold Ockengay? I think it was Harold Ockengay. They started that together. And then, uh, and then they did also, Harold Ockengay brought Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary together. It was two different schools in 1970. He brought them together. But um, that's information that wouldn't, he wouldn't care about. It. I don't know why I said that. But <laughs> I just I have all this information in my head. But um, I, I think in the 40s, as they start to go in different directions, it's clear in the churches and churches are aligning themselves and some even denominations. Denominations are more ascribing to what it becomes. Some of it becomes denominational. You know, like Baptists are largely become fundamentalists. Not all Baptists, but a lot of them become. You know, so it becomes. Or Presbyterians, not so much. Right. So it depends on. So it, it, there's a lot to it that I think it was clear among them. But it was a rift. I mean, the Christians knew this is a rift. This is a family squabble that the world wasn't really paying attention to because they didn't really care. They thought Christians were dumb anyway because they believed these things about the Bible that H.L. That Mencken, you know, exposed in his writings of those uh, Scopes Monkey Trials in 1925. All right, thank you. This is the last one. <clears throat> this person believes in the rapture and pre-tribulation view of it um, as God's final way of getting 
the outside world's attention for one last time to come to him. Uh, yet they also believe in engaging culture to bring people to him. How, they ask, do I state this in showing love to my neighbors? I don't think your eschatology is the motivation for your anthropology. What I mean by, I don't think your view of the end time should, uh, should change how you love people. Jesus didn't say anything about loving people because I'm coming back and going to bring you up. That's just, that's an eschatological view that may or may not happen. Uh, eschatology, which is uh, uh, the theological definition of the, the last days, the end times. When you say eschatology, eschatological, they sound like you're speaking in tongues sometimes. But those are, those are just, that's just a word of saying that. But I, I, I think you, your call to love people, I mean, honestly, to be honest, if you feel like, even if with your eschatology, use it. Be like, hey, I want to I reach people. Because you're, you know, the thing about, I don't know why Christians struggle with what I'm about to say. But, like, it is not unbiblical to think about rewards from Christ. Like, we don't, like he says, we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. I mean, there are multiple passages in the New Testament that talk about, like, Revelation, all the, the letters to the seven churches. For those who persevere to the end, I'll give them this. And, and somehow among Christians, somehow among Christians, that became like proud to think that way. I'm not saying I should think like, hey, if I share the gospel, I might get a new car. <laughs> no, that's, that's not, I, I'm not talking about that. That's, that's, that's Crespo Domino. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, if I share the gospel, it pleases the Father. You read 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 17, right? That's the passage that talks about, like, rewards and, and, and indiscriminately. You, you wouldn't see the thing that way, but, but Paul talks about whoever lays their foundation of the gospel on hay, wooden straw. It says the day, the fire, will disclose what was true. So whatever you did for the glory of God because you love God, rewards come from that. Whatever wasn't from God, it says it'll be burned up. And it says, though he himself will be saved, his rewards won't be. So in other words, just making it to heaven wasn't, isn't sufficient. You can go to heaven just for believing in Jesus. The thief on the cross, what, what good works could he do? He died and Jesus said, today you'll be in paradise. So if we get to heaven and we don't got nothing to show for it, then man, we got there, praise God. But like, man, that's like, nah, I want something to show for it. I think believers, it's okay for believers to have that perspective because the Bible presents that perspective. There's rewards that come from it. We don't have to say, like, oh, I'm doing this to get a reward from you, Lord, but to understand that, like, God rewards his children. He rewards us, which is mind-blowing when you think that he wouldn't reward us. He's rewarding us for things that we wouldn't do unless his spirit was in us, unless he saved us in the first place. I wouldn't naturally just do this for this person, but his spirit in me compels me to want to be a particular way, and then he says, I'm going to reward you for doing it. I don't get it, but he said it, and so I want to believe it. So I think you should still do, talk to the person, pray with, be, you know, do good to this person and to help them, you know, in hopes that they, that God, you know, as Jude 22 says, snatches them out of the fire. I think we want to do those things regardless of my eschatological, eschatological view. I think go march on, do what, do what you say, obey God and, and, and pursue others in love. I think you'll, you'll benefit from it. I mean, honestly, it's, it's I mean, how many, I don't know how many people have led someone to the Lord. It's exhilarating. When you have a conversation with someone, and then they say, I, 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 I want to believe. And, like, you pray with them, and you just see, and then, there's almost, there's few things like that. For moments, you get a taste of, like, heaven rejoicing. It's like, wow. 
then if you have the, the ability to watch that person grow and develop, and it's just like, wow. I'm not talking about your children. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just anyone you meet. Of course, it's exhilarating when your children believe and all that stuff. So. That's it. All right, don't forget, uh, Wednesday, you will uh, have D groups. We'll please read chapter three of Loving Your Enemies, and uh, you guys will have great conversations.